Dr. Roger Payne mm -hmm. um, discovered that these whales could sing oh, off wow. the coast of North Carolina. He discovered for the first time that these humpback whales could sing. And I'm sure you've heard of the humpback whale song. Um, yeah. And it is a song by anyone's definition. It has notes, it has units. You can break it down on paper as verses. Um, you can even have rhyme and rhythm to it. But what Dr. Roger Payne and his team and partners in life did was that he recorded it and he sent a recording into National Geographic. They mass produced that recording, that record, and they slipped it into that month's issue of their magazine and sent it out to millions of people mm -hmm. all around the world. And once the general public realized that there was another species on this planet that could compose these symphonies using the same techniques as Mozart did or Beethoven or Bach, for lack of a better term, their minds were blown. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, it's really what ignited the whole Save the Whales campaign. I don't know about you, but humpback whales are one of my favorite sea creatures in the world. Diving with them, seeing the connection and the intelligence in their eyes was breathtaking, honestly. And this episode is talking all about humpback whales, the conservation success story, and the film project Kohola, which focuses on capturing the beauty and magnificence of these creatures. Today I'm joined by Chris and we chat about all things, how whales have actually been hunted to almost extinction, and why they are one of conservationists' biggest achievement in the past several decades. Absolutely adore this episode, and thank you so much for allowing me to chat to these incredible and inspirational people. I hope you find this as inspiring as I did, and gets you pumped to get into the water and meet some humpback whales. I know I'll be heading over to Hawaii as soon as I can, as soon as all these restrictions lift. I hope you guys are doing okay in this crazy time. I don't even know when this is going to come out, but the world has gone crazy in 2020. So let's just try and keep it positive and light and focus on the oceans. And yeah, if there's anyone you'd like to hear me interview, please send me an email on oceanpancakepodcast at gmail.com uh, or check out the website oceanpancake.com or join the amazing community of people. We're almost at a thousand on YouTube. Uh, sorry, on um, Facebook. Almost at a thousand people on the Ocean Pancake group. So head on over there, meet like-minded people, chat about all things conservation, look at photos, share your photos. I would love to hear from you guys. Uh, yeah, let's get into it. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean. Whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution, if the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic-free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andreskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ocean Pancake Podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris Sophone, who is an ocean storyteller. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Kat. Aloha. It is great to be talking to you. I'm so excited to hear about your project. So you're the founder of this project and it is on the Koloa. <laughs> I already messed it Kohola, up. Kohola Film Project. Kohola Film Project. There we go. Yes, nailed it. <laughs> Before we get into it, could you just tell me a little bit about your background and, and how you came to work with the ocean and conservation and how you fell in love with it? 
That's a that's a great question. I've always had this uh, this affinity towards the sea. I've always felt that it has been kind of calling me. Um, there are times, even to this day, after years of working with the ocean in a professional manner, that I still find myself having to actively stop myself from just jumping in. You know, I could be driving a boat with the responsibility of everyone's life on board or I don't know, watching a watching a storm rage through, hurling these massive thunderous waves along the along the coastline, or even just walking through an aquarium and I'll look at the water and I'll just I just feel the need to jump in and explore and discover and taste and touch and feel. It's weird. I don't know if you can relate, but it feels like this magnet is inside of me. And every time I get close to the ocean, it just pulls me in. I, I completely um, understand what you're saying. I mean, I worked yeah. as a diving instructor for eight years and, you know, we're meant to be the lead by example. And usually, usually I can, but there was this one moment I remember when you said this, it just reminds me, I was in the Comoros and there was a humpback whale just next to the boat. And I just didn't even say anything to anyone, just put my mask on and just fell off the boat. <laughs> quote unquote fell off the boat like just casually just um yeah and it was incredible this humpback and a baby just swam right past and you know before you got the tourists all together and did the briefing mm -hmm. and they would have been gone so i just oh 100 100 percent 100 percent we do a lot of whale watching out here and i do a lot of stuff up in alaska too and mm -hmm. If you're dealing with someone who's never seen a whale before and they see this whale for the first time, it is almost impossible to control them. I've had to physically restrain people on some of these trips because they wanted to, like you, just jump on in and <laughs> say hello. Yeah, I, I have found that part of my job is definitely restraining people because people have the urge to touch and um, yeah. we generally try and discourage that because when you have hordes of tourists, you know, you can't have them petting all the sharks because that won't go well. Correct. Right. <laughs> so I've definitely done my fair share of grabbing and pulling away. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all guilty of that <laughs> in more than one cases. But yeah, this, um, I don't know, I always kind of go back to that Jacques Cousteau quote where okay. he says, the sea, once it casts its spell, hold you in its net of wonder forever. I mean, I feel like that kind of just sums up my whole mindset towards the ocean. I, I don't, honestly don't see how anyone could not be enticed by it. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't understand. <laughs> did you grow up by the sea? So did you have a chance to go a lot as a child? So where, where I grew up, we lived maybe about one to two hours away from the ocean. Um, throughout the year, we really wouldn't think anything of it, but every summer, my basically my entire family on my mom's side, aunts, uncles, cousins, sisters, pets, grandparents, would go to this little beach town um, in Rhode Island on the east coast of the US. And we would spend a couple of months there just kind of tooling around on the beaches. And that's, I think, kind of where that initial seed was planted. Um, and then in high school, I knew I kind of had this affection, this love for the ocean. Um, so I joined our quote unquote oceanography club. And I quote it because I don't think we actually ever did anything regard, regarding the ocean. Um, but I think the main reason everyone joined was because of the end of the year trip down to the Florida Keys, where we would spend a week down there going diving, snorkeling, doing labs, listening to lectures, playing in the sand. And honestly, for a bunch of poorly supervised high schoolers, it was a blast. And have you ever been to the Keys? I don't know if 
to, to the Keys in Florida? Yeah, the, the Florida Keys. No, I did one dive from Jupiter. Is that, that's the town? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so that's pretty similar. But I never actually went down into the Keys. I've done a lot of reading about them and it looks amazing, but unfortunately, no. Yeah, well, I, another place I highly recommend you go visit. But um, coming from New England, uh, this cold green waters mm -hmm. off of Rhode Island uh, in Connecticut and just diving into these crystal clear blue warm waters of the Keys and looking around and seeing this completely other universe, colorful fish swimming left and right, um, the soft coral kind of just swaying back and forth in the surge. I remember there's this massive eagle, spotted eagle ray, as wide as I was tall at the time. It just swam right underneath me and I was like, yes, sign me up. How do I do this forever? Yeah. And that it's always something trip or big yeah. in your case. <laughs> well yeah, I mean it was this one this eagle ray, essentially, I could kind of boil it down to this one eagle ray that essentially set me on this path. And going into college, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I graduated with a degree in uh, marine biology and another one in film theory. Mm -hmm. And like most kids, once they graduate, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I got on a plane and went up to Alaska for my first summer in the adult world um, and I spent it educating these cruise ship passengers all summer long on the local marine and terrestrial ecosystem so as an outdoor guide up there and that was an amazing summer I loved it um, and it kind of really planted this seed in my brain that just continually over the last I don't know 10, 15, almost maybe 12 years have, has just kind of been grown and grown and grown into this ocean conservation mindset. That's amazing. I, I've always wanted to go up there as well. I cannot imagine the biodiversity and is it still like thriving up there? Cause there's so few people living there. In Alaska? Yeah. I highly recommend going to Alaska. Um, I think everyone before they die on this planet should try to visit Alaska. I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. The biodiversity is phenomenal. It just has this kind of intangible vibe of being this wild and untamed place. And I have not been to another place on this planet that can match this same vibe that Alaska has. So get up there, highly recommend it. Well, once travel's allowed again, I'll definitely be heading over to the United yes. States. So I'll try and get, get to Alaska. Um, so after, you know, your introduction to the adult world and dipping your toe in <laughs> conservation, uh, what was the journey like to now starting uh, this project and what kind of inspired you to do that? Yeah, so after that first summer up in Alaska, like I knew I wanted to continue with working with the ocean, but I still kind of didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And I didn't have a job, it was a seasonal job. Um, so the summer ended, I didn't have a job lined up. Um, I had to go back to my parents' house in Connecticut for a couple months. And during that time, I sent out, I don't even know, countless job applications and resumes. And uh, I finally heard back from this one place, this marine science camp in the Florida Keys. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there, my, I'm sitting thinking to myself, well, isn't this fate? I could potentially work down in the same place that ignited this whole passion of mine. So I had the interview, got hired, and about a month after I was on a plane down to the Keys to work at this science camp as this marine science instructor. Um, and it was phenomenal. We were a bunch of kids 
right out of college, living in the Florida Keys with access to a bunch of boats in one of the most productive marine ecosystems in the United States. We had free room and board. We were 30-ish minute drive to Key West where every other building is a bar, most <laughs> of which had a dance floor. I mean, we thought we could change the world. We thought we were invincible. To this day, I still think about it a lot, regardless of all the negatives that may or may not have been involved in working there. That still was the most fun job that I ever had and probably will ever have. I mean, it was like we were brothers and sisters in arms trying to make a difference by educating these kids from all over the world about the ocean. And I think it was my second year there where we had, the camp had this thing called this International Week, where kids from hundreds of high schoolers from all over the globe came to this camp. And it was almost like this, uh, this mini summit where these kids, once they got there, they broke into, I can't remember, five or seven groups. And each group was assigned a certain issue relating to the ocean and they each were tasked trying to come up with ideas of how to solve it. Um, and it was just really incredible to see these high schoolers come up with these ideas, work together, kind of bridge these language barriers because these cultural barriers because they're all coming from different areas. Um, and it was definitely inspiring. But during that week, I was tasked to, to write and give the closing keynote, uh, this speech that kind of wrapped everything up, sent these kids on their way, kind of on this high of the last week of ocean conservation. And I think while I was drafting that speech, that's kind of what brought ocean conservation into my main focus. Mm -hmm. And so I gave this keynote and I ended I ended it with this mantra for the kids to take home with them. Um, and I told them to continue to go green, but always remember to be blue. Mm -hmm. And that basically has been the driving force ever since. I think that was in 2012. And then my contract at this camp ended. I moved out here to Hawaii to work with the whales. And just over the last eight or so years since I've been here, um, the story of the humpback whale has been so influential in my life that I just kind of had to share it and had to tell it. And that's essentially how the Kahola Film Project came to be. That's beautiful. Um, I actually saw your little signature, which was uh, go green, but always remember to be blue. And yeah. it, it's funny because in, in the Ocean Pancake like intro, um, what I kind of said is to live the, a turquoise life. And that's kind of the same sentiment, which is stick with the green, but also add a little bit of blue because our oceans, yeah. really, it's like the biggest, biggest thing we need to focus on. Um, and it, I, I feel it just gets kind of lost in the whole going green movement. Everyone's like, yeah, save the trees. But I don't, I don't know where along the lines people came up with this idea how the trees, don't get me wrong, they're very important, but they produce pretty much all of the oxygen that we breathe. I don't know where that, that uh, falsity came from because yeah. it's actually the ocean. <laughs> yeah and um, the kelp forests and the yeah. seagrass beds and all of these things which are so under threat um, that yeah no I completely understand what you're saying <laughs> um, in terms of the threats facing our ocean do you what, what in your perspective is like the biggest one um, is it just that lack of information surrounding the focus considering as you said, most people are focusing on the trees and the, and the forests. Um, I think it's a good question. The, the biggest threat to the ocean right now, I think, yeah, just building off that, I think just 
our focus is is elsewhere right now and not just in like the terms of of not knowing about it it's just it's been i don't know if you're kind of following the news of the united states right now but yeah. it's been a tough <laughs> a tough week or so um yeah. on top of a tough pandemic and my heart goes out to everyone but i just don't know like i've been racking my brain and i've been talking to other friends in the marine conservation uh fields like how when all of these other huge important issues are kind of are more in front of people's faces mm -hmm. than the ocean like how do you get them to also focus on essentially the beating heart of our planet and i think that is a and it, and it has been even before everything that's been happening in the last couple of months i think it has been a huge issue like people it's the ocean is out of sight it's out of mind it's this big thing that no one that you think that you can't really hurt it or stop it or anything like that and i think that in itself is the main issue that has to somehow be overcome yeah i i know in the past week or so because of everything that's happening in the united states and now it's you know spread across the world i mean i live in a tiny little town so i couldn't go to any protests um but i felt almost guilty to continue yeah. doing the work i'm doing to continue putting a focus on the ocean and on world ocean day which was yesterday 8th of june uh, oh i totally forgot it's it's world ocean day right now where i am still all right time difference <laughs> yes thank you time but anyways yeah um so it's 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 difficult because you know you want to keep working and bringing people's attention but at the same time this is something i experienced when i lived in cambodia and the comoros which is how do you make people focus on the conservation of the ocean when they're struggling for basic things like food and human rights and freedom and you know potable water and yeah. how do you get them to stop using plastic or you know to not overfish when you know it's <sighs> yeah it, 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 and it's hard too because like i said the ocean is just this massive entity and yeah if you're just one person with a, a rod and reel you'll pull, you pull a fish out you're not going to think anything of it you you'd like yeah, i can never overfish the seas yeah but then like if billions of people are doing it and these huge mega trawlers are out there scooping up millions of pounds of fish on a single trip and uh, it's it's hard to i guess quantify that for someone who doesn't or isn't involved in the ocean sciences mm -hmm. um, or ocean recreation to know or understand yeah i mean when i was when i was in cambodia we went on a dive and i was taking some of the local um higher up in the the government diving and yeah. it was very interesting experience let's put it this way because out <laughs> at the same time you know i felt a bit of guilt considering they had better scuba diving gear than i could ever afford <laughs> and the rest right. of the country is you know um hunting and gathering slugs from the the land just to get enough food wow really? uh, yes but i had the opportunity to educate them so you know that's how i was trying to see it and you know i was underwater and i started collecting trash as i do just put it in my pockets yeah. and I, they saw me doing that and they started doing it and i was like oh cool okay cool oh. like it's something's happening here you know they're noticing something and i don't know if you've ever dived in cambodia but there's no fish i mean i have not i lived there for 4 months and i didn't see a fish bigger than my hand i saw one cobia really but nothing wow. else i mean no turtles no sharks no pelagic fish just nothing four months one fish <laughs> and then we got back to the hotel and you know i was feeling a little good i was like they collected trash you know they <laughs> they saw some impact right 
and then they had a seafood buffet for dinner. And <laughs> I kid you not, this, this buffet had more species of fish and bigger fish than I had seen in four months diving there. And they were just like happily eating it. And I was like, no one sees this? No? Okay. <laughs> like, you no didn't one, see no in our oceans because they're yeah. empty. Um, that was really when I was like, ah, oh, we got to we got to do something. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I totally agree. I think that's a big driving force to uh, this project and um, the fact that I want to create these films that help educate people. Like you can be sitting in your house thousands of miles away from the ocean, but go on YouTube or Vimeo or on the internet and watch these movies about these humpback whales and just bring them right into your living room or right into your bedroom. And you can learn about them, the plight of them, the success story of them. Um, uh, I can't remember, I think it was maybe in 2006 or so, um, here in the United States, Sylvia, Dr. Sylvia Earle. Mm -hmm. um, her took, royal deepness, of course. Yes, her royal deepness herself took a, a film about the, the, the northernmost, northwesternmost chain of Hawaiian Islands, mm -hmm. uh, took this film to the president, George Bush, at the time. And, and this was at the time when we didn't really have any type of marine monuments or protected areas. Yeah. Uh, but she showed him this film and afterwards, I think I remember an interview, an interview of her talking about it. Afterwards, you just, I, you just got up apparently and was like, all right, what are we going to do about this? And that led to, at the time, one of the biggest marine uh, monuments on the planet. And all because of a film that he saw. And so that kind of kind of is at the, the, the foundation, the basis of what I'm trying to do as well. I mean, films evoke such emotion in people, and I'm sure you've heard this plenty of times before, but people will protect things that they have an emotional connection to. And if oh, absolutely. You, know, you love something, there's a better chance that you're going to put an effort to actually uh, save it. And I think you're exactly right. Putting it in footage on a screen I mean David Attenborough is my hero <laughs> oh I'm still I'm still trying to meet him at some point in my life so I can get him to record my voicemail message or adopt me one of the two yeah I know <laughs> sir dad David Attenborough yeah but, uh, <laughs> um yeah that that's the dream <laughs> Yeah, he can be my foster grandfather and Sylvia can be my foster grandmother. Basically, they, they are truly the, the heroes um, of, of the conservation world, amongst the many other incredible people, of course, that are. Oh, yeah. Um, so you want to film humpbacks. Um, and I, you know, one of the things you and Drew said, who's your um, photographer, a videographer of the, of the movie, uh, is to film... Uh, the birth of a humpback whale, because that's never been captured on film. So why was that the precise mission, apart from it never being done before? <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so to preference everything, mm -hmm. this past season, mm -hmm. so uh, I think it was in early, either late February, early March, um, one of, or a number of whale watching boats out here, mm -hmm. they, saw and filmed for the first time a quote-unquote partial birth. Mm -hmm. So it was very exciting. It kind of confirmed a lot of the theories we have. Uh, one of my good friends, Emma, was one of the naturalists on one of the boats, and uh, she sent me her footage, and it's phenomenal. But you can kind of see the, the mom. You can see the uh, calf's tail coming out of the mother's oh, wow. uh, vaginal slip. It is something that has never been documented before and it was super incredible and 
phenomenal. But the, the problem was no one was able to stay with the whales long enough to see it to completion. So there's still a lot of questions that have gone unanswered and actually more questions have arose from this, this event. But essentially what has happened over the last eight years, I've been working down here and up in Alaska with these humpbacks in the North Pacific stock and uh, taking people out on whale watches and educating them. And honestly, I would get asked questions all the time and I know I'd have to answer with an I don't know. And I got really tired of saying that. Uh, and it's not for lack of my own research and knowledge, but it's just for lack of no one knows the questions that these, uh, these tourists were, were asking me at the time. And it's phenomenal to me. Some of the most obvious questions have still gone unanswered about the humpback whale which in my opinion is the poster animal for the conservation movement. It started the whole Save the Whales campaign. It's like, you think of conservation, you think of pandas, humpback whales. And the fact that we barely know anything about it after 50 plus years of studying it is just astonishing. We've never documented the birth of one. We've never seen them mate. The two most biologically significant events in any animal's life, still a big mystery to us. And I was like, I'm sick of saying, I don't know. So a couple of years back, I applied the same year, coincidentally, that the North Pacific stock of humpback whale was taken off the endangered species list. I applied to the federal government of the United States for a commercial and and educational photography permit. Mm -hmm. And it was a very long, long, tedious process. They had to vet me extensively. I had to answer questions left and right. Um, But I essentially wanted to make a film talking about the success story of the whales with the kind of basis of it being the birth of the next generation of whale. Um, So I finally got this permit, and it was the first one of its kind at the time, Mm -hmm. and that was in 2017, I believe. Um, And yeah, we just finished our third season this year. It was a little cut short due to a lot of different factors, um, permanent issues and the pandemic, Um, but next year we are super stoked to get back out in the water. That'd be amazing. And it's true that they're really the poster animal for conservation because of the enormous success of um, their numbers. They got taken off the endangered species list. For people who don't know, could you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, it is one of my favorite stories to tell. And honestly, I think one of the greatest success stories in conservation history. Um, Particularly, I tell it from the lens of the North Pacific stock of humpback whales. So for those of you who don't know, humpback whales are a cosmopolitan species of whale. So they're in pretty much all of the oceans all around the world, but they're broken up into different stocks. And Mm -hmm. these stocks, they never, I shouldn't say never, but they rarely kind of intermingle. So we're dealing out here in Hawaii and up in Alaska with the North Pacific stock, the humpback whale. And back in the early 70s, they were hunted to the brink of extinction. Um, There were maybe around 500 to a thousand left in the entire North Pacific. The 70s brought us very close to the point of no return. Um, and then, and this is, this is a, a really interesting part, Dr. Roger Payne mm-hmm. um, discovered that these whales could sing. Oh, off wow. the coast of North Carolina, he discovered for the first time that these humpback whales could sing. And I'm sure you've heard of the humpback whale song, 
Um, and it is a song by anyone's definition. It has notes, it has units. You can break it down on paper as verses. Um, you can even have rhyme and rhythm to it. But what Dr. Roger Payne and his team and partners in life did was that he recorded it and he sent a recording into National Geographic. They mass produced that recording, that record, and they slipped it into that month's issue of their magazine and sent it out to millions of people mm -hmm. all around the world. And once the general public realized that there was another species on this planet that could compose these symphonies using the same techniques as Mozart did or Beethoven or Bach, for lack of a better term, their minds were blown. Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, it's really what ignited the whole Save the Whales campaign. Yeah. Um, and that whole Save the Whales campaign, in my opinion, again, is one of the first incredibly successful campaigns of the whole conservation movement, mm -hmm. um, which is why I kind of refer to them as the poster animal for the conservation movement. Uh, but we fast forward through all the protests, all the demonstrations um, to this day and age through the moratorium, the ban on commercial whaling that happened in the early 80s because of all the protests. But we fast forward to 2020. And here in the North Pacific, we went from 500 whales. Now we're looking at close to 25,000 in wow. less than 50 years. In less than one lifetime, one lifetime, Kat, we have witnessed one of the greatest success stories in conservation history. And that is essentially the foundation of the films that we're trying to produce. This, this incredible story of success and perseverance from a species that had its own voice that had to be helped by another species that essentially brought these whales into the darkness. We essentially hunted them to the yeah. brink of extinction. Then we realized our, our, our wrongdoing and we, got, and we banded together as a global population. And now pretty much all the population, all of the stocks of humpbacks around the world are and have been steadily on the, on the rise. And like I mentioned, uh, back in 2017, the North Pacific stock was taken off of the endangered species list, which is a huge win. It's phenomenal. That is absolutely incredible. Yeah, I don't know how you couldn't be inspired by something like that. It is, it is amazing because I have been seeing where I live. We do have um, humpbacks as well, which come by. They're actually coming in anytime this month so oh yeah they should be coming up there yeah it's your winter i'm so excited to to be able to see them <laughs> because it's yeah they are one of the most i don't know when when the first time i saw one just its eye it looked at me that you know it yeah. fully checked me out and it didn't it didn't just it didn't just look at you these whales when you make eye contact with them they're looking it's almost like they're looking into you mm -hmm. um, and you know that there's something going on in their brain because you're staring at this sentient being it's like you are an intelligent being and then now you're staring at another one that some people would argue is as intelligent as some human beings mm -hmm. i would I would definitely argue that. I mean, I can't compose symphonies like that. <laughs> right? Exactly. And um, there's just so many, so many things, so many little, the more you're, you're, the more you work with them and the more you watch them and the more I've noticed that there are just so many little subtle things mm -hmm. that you're, that you start to pick up on and you start to notice and you just like, you just start thinking you're like, huh. Is that whale doing that on purpose? Or is that just a random coincidence? Or are these whales communicating just by looking at each other? It's I mean there's the more, definitely, definitely something yeah, going on because something is definitely going on. <laughs> and I want to figure it out. Uh, 
and you get to capture it. That's yeah, that's, that's the fun part. That is the fun part. The the it's 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 very short. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who know about this project, they're I think they have this um, glorified romantic idea of what I am actually doing. Most of the time, we're just sitting on the boat, staring at nothing. Yeah, waiting. Um, it's me. Yeah, and just waiting. It's me. And there are five other, four, four or five other um, people that are on my team. Anna, Mike, Drew, the guy you talked to is our uh, lead photographer, and then Annie. And then I have a lot of other help from a lot of other people who have volunteered over the past few years to come out. But yeah, a lot of the time, it's just sitting there, just twiddling your thumbs, waiting, pumping up a boat because it's got a lot of holes in it. There's always something like that going on. <laughs> always, always something. It can never be, it can never be too easy. That's true. Um, with, with the populations, you know, coming back so incredibly, do you know what some of the impacts have been on other populations or on ecosystems generally? Yeah, so humpback whales are a keystone species. Mm -hmm. They are an ecosystem engineer. And what a lot of people don't realize, and what I always try to make it a point um, to talk about when I'm uh, lecturing or giving a presentation on these whales, is that they, humpback whales themselves, the population, they can essentially fluctuate the oxygen that we breathe as human beings. They essentially mm -hmm. control the oxygen that we breathe. And a lot of people, they don't realize that they're, these humpback whales essentially are like gardeners, right? So they'll eat these massive meals, digest it, excrete their waste, and then that waste falls to the bottom and it, it acts as fertilizer, causing these huge algal blooms to happen. And these algal blooms are what are creating, uh, these primary producers are creating the oxygen. The majority of the oxygen that we're breathing. So the more humpback whales that there are, the more oxygen, the cleaner our air can be. And since these massive algal blooms are happening, there's more, uh, there's a bigger base on the food pyramid, um, on, this, on this food web for other fish. So you see that as the whales have come back over the last 50 years, half a century or so, you see that certain fish stocks have also come back. A lot of people thought that as the whales came back, they would eat all the fish and there would be a decline mm -hmm. in these fish populations, but it's actually the exact opposite. And it's because of their fertilization properties as they excrete their, their waste. So it's pretty phenomenal. They're kind of like, I call them the canary in the coal mine for the ocean. Um, if, if the population of the humpback is doing poorly, then you better believe the rest of the ocean is doing poorly and then vice versa. If they're doing well and they're thriving, then the ocean itself can also be thriving too. That's amazing. I think it's similar to sharks that are also keystone species. Yeah. Counterintuitively, the more sharks, the more fish, just because it keeps exactly. the whole um, ecosystem balanced. It keeps everything healthy, yeah. So do you know when um, this project is, you know, going to get us <laughs> to see more footage of uh, humpback whales or is everything kind of on, um, on pause due to the world? <laughs> <laughs> the world being on pause? Yeah, I don't know what's happening out there. Yeah, um, so the whole project, um, it's permit based. So every year I have to reapply for the permit and I just sent in my application uh, mm -hmm. a couple days ago. So hopefully next year we'll be re-permitted and ready to go. But um, we are in the process of working on um, a little short film, maybe about 10 to 20 minutes long, uh, using the footage that we have so far um, and using some of the footage from 
my friend Emma's encounter with that partial birth as well. And I really kind of want to focus this short on the next generation, not just of whales, but also of ocean conservationists and filmmakers and storytellers. Because I mean, I go to all of the, I go to all of these lectures and seminars and you see these great people speak, these great photographers and filmmakers and scientists and storytellers and the consensus is next generation, the next generation, the next generation. Yeah. And so I kind of want to focus this next film we're working on, on in in the in the lane of hey we're the next generation and we're yeah, ready to we're go here. yeah we're ready to pick up the torch and continue to lay the groundwork from what you guys have done before us so it depends on um how we can how fast we can get through a, a, an edit uh, my computer is very old and can't really handle the footage so it's it's tricky Mike, our lead videographer and uh, main editor, um, it's tough for him to, to go through because it's hundreds of thousands of hours yeah. of footage of high quality, like 4K footage too. So he's got, a, he's got a much better system than I do, but it can even bog his system down. So it's tough to get through everything. But hopefully soon within, I'd say before the end of, of summer, we should have something out. Well, that would be amazing. Well, you're going to definitely have to let us know. Um, yeah, for now, where, where can people find you? Um, um, so you can go to our Instagram account. Mm -hmm. um, it's at Kohola underscore film. And I think you can put, you'll put it in the, in the notes yeah, for I'll the podcast. On the website. Yeah, I will be honest, though, I am not a big fan of social media, so I don't yeah. post to it very often, but I am trying to remedy that and trying to be more active. Um, you can go to colafilm.com as well. That's our little our website. We have a blog on there. Um, you could, uh, my own personal um Instagram is Vagabond of the Sea. Mm -hmm. Again, not very active on it though. So <laughs> yeah. Well. It's it's tricky with with uh, the mindset of trying to get get these films out there, but also not being active on social media. The double edged sword. Trying to it's figure it out. Trying to make a balance. Yeah. It's part of the it's part of the thing you have to do. But I totally understand. It's a necessary I evil. Spend more of my time in the ocean rather than yeah. <laughs> yeah you know and I'm the type of person who is like if I'm going to post something I'll probably sit there for like an hour coming up with the best caption mm -hmm. and my god just wasted an hour of my day <laughs> trying to do one post cool no big yeah. deal I I definitely know what you mean <laughs> yes yeah, so but um, you can definitely check us out there yeah we'll have a look and um just before we end the podcast, I want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests, which is if you had one piece of advice for anyone who wants to protect our oceans, what would it be? Just one. Oh. <laughs> one piece of advice. That's, that's easy in my mind. If I had one piece of advice to give to someone who wants to help our ocean, it would be to learn about it. Mm -hmm. The ocean is this big, blue, wet, mysterious blob that most people just don't know much about. And my advice to them would be to learn about it. In my opinion, in my opinion, discovery is the catalyst for conservation. And like you were saying before, the more you learn about something, the more you'll love it, the more you want to protect it. So go and learn about the ocean. I mean, Roger Payne discovered, he discovered that these humpbacks could sing, and that started a worldwide revolution. Imagine what you could discover just by hopping in and looking beneath the surface. Yeah. Amazing. 
Um, thank you so much for coming on uh, to the podcast. I'm so excited to see the footage you capture and hopefully once travels permitted, I can get to that side of the world and, you know, maybe, yes. maybe, maybe meet you guys and see, see the work you're doing in person. Yeah. Just give us a shout out. If you're ever on Maui, we'll take you out. Well, it's, Show you, you know, one of the closest things to Australia. Yeah, it is. I have a couple <laughs> of friends who live there. They just pop on over. Oh, amazing. You know, just a casual yeah. eight hour flight. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much. And I can't wait to see the work you're doing. Thank you, Kat. I appreciate you uh, having me on board. Oh, one thing. Yeah. You need to tell me what or where Ocean Pancake came from. Oh, that's right. You did say that you're curious. So I was trying to find a name for my new website because my old one was called My Vegan Experiment. And while, mm -hmm. you know, I still believe veganism and a plant-based diet is very important, um, the mm -hmm. ocean has always had my heart. You, you had a ray which got your heart. Mine was an octopus. Um, okay. <laughs> so I needed something to do with ocean. And I was looking at other words that we could combine with ocean. And some, somewhere, somehow, I just saw the word pancake next to ocean. And I couldn't stop laughing for about an hour. Fantastic. And I thought it was the funniest thing in the world. I don't know why. But <laughs> I felt if I had such a strong reaction to it, I got to keep it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like a, a, a piece of art, a good piece of art gets you talking. A yeah. good podcast name, definitely. Yeah. Well, people remember good. it, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> I will not forget it. Ocean Pancake. I thought it would have had to do something with, I don't know, yeah, maybe a ray or something because they kind of look like pancakes. Well, I have also heard that, you know, some people call manta rays or rays ocean pancakes. Um, yeah. So that just added an extra layer, but it was genuinely Perfect. because I found it funny. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I love it. Don't change it. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Chris, for being such an inspiration in the work you're doing. And I'm so excited to hear about how the project goes with your whole team. And you might have me on your boats soon, hanging out with the whales, jumping in or falling in maybe uh but in all seriousness thank you so much and can't wait to see the footage as always i also need to say a massive thank you to graham mose who provides the music for this podcast graham mose is a very talented singer songwriter music creator he's in a band called fat picnic I know, amazing name. They are funky. They make you want to dance. So head on over to Graham Moe's Music. He is based in Brisbane. You can find his music online or head on over to his gigs if you have the chance. If you want to help support me in the work I do, it would mean the world if you become a patron or donate on the oceanpancake.com website. Uh, there are also t-shirts. There's merch. So head on over, do all that stuff, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.